what is the origin of humanity? As a psychologist back in the 70s, my main interest was intelligence, because it is intelligence reflected by the size of our brain, which, by the way, is three times larger than other apes, such as gorillas and chimpanzees, that makes us human. Our ancestral lines split from other apes around six million years ago. So what happened over those six million years that culminated in Homo sapiens about 100,000 years ago with a brain size close to one and a half kilos? My guest today, Peter Rees Evans, is author of a fascinating book, The Waterside Ape, which proposes a very plausible hypothesis about what really made our ancestors ultimately become human. Peter, welcome. Now, you are a highly respected ear, nose and throat consultant and expert. What originally got you interested in the idea that the evolution of mankind might have something to do with water, an aquatic environment? Thank you, Patrick. Yes, many of your listeners might indeed wonder how an ear, nose and throat specialist could get mixed up in human evolution and anthropology. It all started back in the mid-1980s, when I was a senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham, where I had a research interest in the nose and sinuses. I was asked to write a chapter in a textbook on the anatomy and physiology of the nose and sinuses. I wondered what on earth I could possibly write about the subject that was new and interesting. I had been fascinated by the major differences between humans and our closest primate cousins, the chimpanzee and the gorilla, and decided to write about the comparative skull anatomy and physiology of humans and other primates. There were also other unique human characteristics, such as hairlessness, the fact that we walk on two legs rather than four, our buoyant, streamlined body with subcutaneous fat, our unique mechanism for heat regulation with sweating, our big brains, and our marine-type kidneys. These features are only seen in aquatic mammals and are not present in any other land mammal. I could not reconcile these unique human characteristics with a traditionally accepted theory of human evolution. For the past 150 years, since the time of Darwin, a savannah theory of human evolution has been assumed and accepted without much scientific scrutiny apart from fossil evidence. This theory suggests that because our ape ancestors were around, around in the trees and we live on the land, it was assumed that our human ancestors simply came down from the trees onto the savannah where they stood upright because they could see further over the vegetation. They became hunter-gatherers, running after gazelles and other game, and until recently, no other evolutionary scenario has been considered. I could not understand why there are lots of other monkeys and apes who change from a tree habitat to live on the savannah, but they remain the same hairy animals that they were 20 million years ago. So why are humans so fundamentally different? Well, in his inspirational book, The Origin of Species, Darwin explained that evolutionary changes were brought about by the need for species to adapt and survive in a continually changing habitat. 
he emphasized that there were two major factors governing evolutionary changes. One was survival of the fittest, and the second, which he felt was much more important, was conditions of existence. For instance, if identical twins are brought up in two totally different environments, although they look the same, they will behave and react differently in order to adapt and survive in their different environments. This focus on uh, the environment and conditions of existence is so interesting these days when we're in the time of epigenetics, that is the effect of the outside, the environment, on our genes. So what were the conditions of existence uh, and what happened in East Africa at the time of the genetic split from our primate cousins six or seven million years ago to influence such a major change in human destiny? Well, there were two important events which happened around that time. The first was that global temperature fell and the forest habitat where our ape ancestors lived became decimated and was replaced by grassland and savanna. They could no longer rely on the lush vegetation of the forests and new sources of food had to be found for their survival. The second was the formation of a vast inland sea, 40 to 50 miles wide, from the Gulf of Aden through Ethiopia, Tanzania, down to Mozambique in the south. This was due to separation of the East African plate from the main African continent about 6.7 million years ago, forming the Great Rift Valley. This resulted in a series of shallow saltwater lakes and this is exactly where most of the early human fossils and skulls were found. So what is the evidence that early humans evolved in a more aquatic habitat? For example, as you're describing in the, in the flooded Great Rift Valley. Well, it was the eminent marine biologist, Sir Alistair Hardy, who first recognised that our unique human features were not seen in any other primate or terrestrial mammal but was seen in various forms in aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals. In 1960, he wrote an article in The New Scientist suggesting that perhaps there may have been an aquatic phase in our early evolution. This aquatic or waterside theory suggests that when sources of food were scarce, our early human ancestors started foraging in the newly formed shallow lakes and rivers for food. It was abundantly available, such as plants, mollusks, clams and fish. Most of these can be just picked out of the water. Even catching fish is not so difficult. I remember as a teenager, we used to stay during holidays in a small cottage in a remote part of the Yorkshire Dales. Our next-door neighbour was a kind elderly gentleman who used to go out in the mornings with an empty bucket and then several hours later came back with a bucket full of trout. I was intrigued and followed him one day to a local stream where he stood patiently with his hand in the water. Suddenly he would pull out a trout and put it in the bucket. He taught me the art of tickling and catching trout which at the end of the day provided a very nice meal for the family. Peter, I may need to add that to your CV, uh, Trout Tickler. <laughs> In your excellent book, 
uh, the Waterside Ape, you unpack the many differences we have with land-based mammals. So let's examine these as pieces of evidence in this intriguing what done it. How and why do you think our ancestors learned to stand upright? Well, our belief is that when they started to extend their territory into deeper water, they obviously had to keep their noses and airway above water. And this gradually meant a more upright posture. The buoyancy of the water supported their legs and spine, and slowly their pelvises rotated into a more vertical and streamlined shape. As a result, their legs became stronger, and when they were back on land, they found that they no longer needed their hands for walking. Now, we know that by 3.4 million years ago, Donald Johansson's finding of an almost complete female skeleton called Lucy confirmed that these early Australopithecines were standing and walking upright, allowing their hands to be used for increasing manual dexterity. Now, I run <clears throat> safaris in Kenya, in the Rift Valley, and out there in the bush, one thing becomes very clear, and, and that is that if you want to catch an animal, the very last thing you do is stand up. All the good hunters are fantastic at crawling, and they're really good at sprinting. Uh, and neither of these qualities do we have. On that basis alone, the idea that we evolved out of the trees and stood up somehow with extra intelligence and spears, which we know came much later, just didn't make any sense to me. I remember first reading this idea in Desmond Morris's Naked Ape book. Yet even today, we see prominent experts on TV, such as Dr. Alice Roberts, dismiss the Homo aquaticus idea. Why is this? Well, following Sir Alistair Hardy's article in 1960, one of the first modern books on human evolution, as you mentioned, was The Naked Ape, written by Desmond Morris and published in 1967. He thought that the aquatic ape theory was fascinating and resolved many of the unanswered questions about the unique differences between humans and other primates. However, ever since the time of Darwin, anthropologists have based the savannah theory of human evolution almost entirely on fossil evidence and have not considered any other possible scenario. Desmond Morris pointed out that all of the unique human features relating to the aquatic theory, such as hairlessness, subcutaneous fat, kidneys that are different to other land mammals, were all soft tissue changes and there was no fossil evidence to support the aquatic ape theory. However, he concludes at the end that even if it eventually turns out to be true, it will not clash seriously with the general picture of the hunting ape's evolution from the ground ape. Amusingly, he said it will simply mean that the ground ape went through a rather salutary christening ceremony. It was Elaine Morgan, though, who popularised the aquatic ape theory in the 1970s and 80s with her best-selling books on the aquatic ape hypothesis. But the theory was again ignored and ridiculed by mainstream anthropologists, mainly because she was not a scientist and there was still no fossil evidence. So when I became interested in the subject and struggled to believe the Savannah theory as an explanation, I read Elaine Morgan's book, and everything suddenly seemed 
to make sense relating to human anatomy and physiology. But what about this lack of fossil evidence? Well, this was another thing as an ear, nose and throat surgeon. I thought that possibly I could find the vital fossil evidence which would help to prove the theory. For over 100 years, ENT surgeons have known about a curious ear condition where small bones called exostoses grow in the deep part of the ear canal, close to the eardrum. Sometimes they grow so large that it is difficult to actually see the eardrum. But no one has been able to understand or explain what they're for and why they only grow in that position. However, the most curious thing about these exostoses is that they only ever grow in people who swim and dive frequently on an almost daily basis. They're so common in long-term surfers that the condition is now colloquially known as surfer's ear. So I did some research into the hearing mechanism of various mammals. Some who live on the land need an open-ear canal for maximum hearing. Others, such as whales and dolphins, who left the land about 60 million years ago to live permanently in the sea, have ear canals which are totally blocked off. But they have instead evolved a sophisticated sonar mechanism for hearing. Semi-aquatic mammals, however, such as seals and dolph and uh, hippopotamus, who live part of the time on land but swim and dive, need to hear on land, but also need to protect their delicate eardrum from rupture when diving. I found that they all have some mechanism to narrow or temporarily block off their ear canals when they're diving. In fact, this harbour seal has an exostosis in the ear canal similar to that found in humans. So I thought that if this provided a survival advantage for the seal, it may also have evolved in humans for the same purpose, to protect the eardrum when diving. In 1992, I wrote an article describing an aquatic evolutionary theory to explain the various unique features in humans and predicted that if we could demonstrate these exostoses in early human skulls with the new CT scans that were available, it would provide the vital fossil evidence for the aquatic or waterside theory. But we had to wait a long time, but they've now been found in Homo erectus skulls from one to two million years ago, and in a recent study of 23 Neanderthal skulls from 70,000 to 100,000 years ago, 47% of them had ear exostoses. Now, that, that is really an extraordinary fact. Uh, an evolutionary uh, point that needs to be explained. At your book launch, Sir David Attenborough said that there was a second conclusive argument for the waterside theory, which provides, quoting him, a totally incontrovertible demonstration that our view of the paleo history of mankind has been quite misguided. Yes, this other factor or characteristic relates to something called the vernix. When human babies are born, they are covered with a waxy, waterproof layer or membrane called the vernix. Nobody has been able to explain this, and as far as we know, there are no other primates or terrestrial mammals with a vernix. However, there is another semi-aquatic mammal with a vernix, the seal, 
What is more, the chemistry, the biochemistry and the gene responsible for producing the vernix is identical to that found in humans. And how do you explain why humans, compared with other primates, have virtually no body hair and have a layer of subcutaneous fat, which, by the way, in many people, is getting rather too big? Yes, yes. Well, hairlessness and a layer of subcutaneous fat are features that are not seen in any other land mammal. But, as Sir Alistair Hardy pointed out in his article, they're commonly seen in aquatic mammals, where they give streamlining and buoyancy for swimming and diving. It is our belief that over several million years, early humans slowly evolved these and other aquatic features to improve their swimming, diving and hunting skills. In your book, you also mention a diving reflex at birth and in young infants, meaning that we are able to swim before we can walk and hold our breath underwater. Yes, the major difference between baby humans and other primates is that human infants have a thick layer of subcutaneous fat, which makes them very buoyant. Whereas a baby chimpanzee is born with a thin pelt, and if immersed in water would quickly sink and drown. As you know, water births have become quite popular, and many say that it is much more natural, and there is evidence that it is much less painful. In fact, coastal tribes in Indonesia and elsewhere were using water births for long generations until they were told by missionaries that it was wrong. The diving reflex and ability of humans to hold their breath underwater is unique among primates and terrestrial mammals, but is seen in other aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals and diving birds which search for food underwater. I was talking to an anthropologist who's been living with the Indonesian tribes, the Moken and Baju, who can hold their breath for an extraordinary length of time underwater, spend up to five hours in the water, as you say, traditionally would give birth in the water and even wean their children onto seaweed. So <laughs> we have, you know, subgroups of, uh, of uh, human tribes who seem to be you know, moving in that very semi-aquatic direction. Now, another unique feature is our descended larynx and our ability to speak and make complex sounds. How did this come about, and is it related to holding the breath underwater? Yes, it is. The most significant unique human characteristic which sets us apart from any other creature is our ability to speak. It is also one of the most difficult aspects of human evolution to explain. The one thing that makes speech possible in humans is our elongated tongue and the descended position of our larynx. When I was writing the chapter on evolution of the voice in the book, I initially found it very difficult to explain why the human tongue has doubled in length compared with other primates. Primates and other land mammals are what we know as obligatory nasal breathers, which means that they breathe through the nose directly into the larynx and into the lungs. The nasal airway is therefore quite separate from the food passage from the mouth. They spend five, six, seven hours a day eating, and in order to survive, they need to eat and breathe at the same time. Breathing through the nose also allows them to use their acute sense of smell to warn them about nearby predators or sources of food. 
They can make sounds and make calls, which is possible by momentarily lowering their larynx, but it immediately goes back to its original position. The tongue, as you know, is primarily used for moving food around the mouth when eating and chewing before it is swallowed. Unlike any other primate, in adult humans, the back of the tongue has an additional vertical length almost as long as the portion in the mouth. But why has this happened? A human infant, however, is also an obligatory nasal breather because it too depends on survival, on being able to breastfeed and breathe at the same time. However, between the age of 6 and 12 months, when the baby weans from breastfeeding and learns to eat independently, the larynx curiously starts to descend into a lower adult position in the throat and the airway and the food passage are no longer separated. This change in position is crucial to allow us to speak. So why did this happen in humans and not in any other primate or land mammal? Well, this goes back to swimming and the need to hold one's breath when diving. Recent studies have been done on a number of modern coastal breath-holding divers who spend up to nine hours a day hunting underwater, including the Amar in Japan and the Baju population in Indonesia. It was found that in a typical spear fisherman's dive down to 20 metres, the heart rate slows down to 20, 30 beats a minute and the lungs are compressed to about a third of their normal volume, exerting a tremendous negative pressure on the larynx and tongue base, pulling it downwards and elongating the tongue base. I propose a theory to explain that in early humans one to two million years ago, learning to dive and hold their breath, hunting underwater, the ones who survived better were those who had adapted and evolved a lower larynx. Like all other evolutionary adaptations, this feature became an inherited genetic characteristic, which we have today. What about speech? I mean, speech is really what makes us humans so fundamentally different to other species. Well, the gradual descent of the larynx in early humans, like bipedalism and other semi-aquatic features, would have evolved over several million years and would have been well established by 150,000 years ago when most scientists believe that our early ancestors in Africa were very like us in appearance. They were evolving a much more independent lifestyle based on a cohesive and cooperative community. Speech, on the other hand, only developed later in the period known as the Cognitive Revolution. Some people think that voice, that the descended larynx was meant purely for developing speech. But in fact, the process of descending larynx took several million years and the actual development of speech was much later, between 70 and 100,000 years ago, when the larger-brained Homo sapiens evolved many more sophisticated and artistic skills. You also mention other adaptations in the skull, nose and sinuses, which are unique to humans compared with other primates. Yes, the human skull is much lighter than other primates. And we also have expanded air sinuses in the skull around the nasal cavities. These help to make the human skull much more buoyant, 
which would have been useful to keep the nose and airway out of the water. Also, the elongated shape of the human nose, with the airway entrance pointing downwards rather than forwards, as in other primates, would have been helpful to prevent water entering easily into the airway when swimming and diving. Curiously, we also have muscles around the entrance to the nose, which allow us to flare or constrict the nasal opening. These are much better developed than the seal, which can actually close off its nostril completely when diving. What about human kidneys, which seem to be different to other primates and land mammals? I think we might have something in common with camels, I once read. Yes, yes, it's curious that the, the function of the kidneys, as you know, is to filter out salts and other impurities from the blood and excrete them in the urine. The internal structure of the kidney is different in various mammal species, depending on the type of habitat in which they live whether it is on land, where fluid intake is mainly low in salt, or in the sea, where the salt concentration is much greater. Human kidneys are different from all other terrestrial mammals, but are similar to those of marine mammals. The only exception, as you say, is the camel, which consumes large quantities of salty, briny water when it can, which sustains it for long periods of time. You mentioned earlier about increasing manual dexterity being possible because early bipedal humans no longer needed their hands for walking. Now, what about also the curious appearance of crinkly fingers when our hands have been immersed in water for a few minutes? Well, this is another unique human feature that has been the subject of much recent research. These studies have shown that wrinkly fingers are much more efficient in picking objects out of the water in the same way that treaded tyres on a car have a far better grip in the wet than smooth tyres. We believe that this feature evolved, along with other aquatic features in early humans, to increase the efficiency of collecting clams and other shellfish from the seabed. And no other logical explanation has been suggested for these crinkly fingers. Now, as a nutritionist, I am, of course, interested in the role of our diet in brain development and intelligence. In fact, my first study in the early 80s, uh, published in The Lancet, uh, Professor David Benton was the lead author, showed that increased intakes of vitamins and minerals increased nonverbal IQ scores in children quite dramatically. Now, an aquatic environment would have provided a rich supply of nutrients, including the omega-3 fats, vitamin B12, which is only in the animal kingdom, very rich in fish, selenium, iodine, and others, which are so critical to brain development and function. I'm going to explore this in depth in my next podcast with Professor Michael Crawford, but it seems obvious to me that a land-based diet devoid of some of these nutrients is certainly not brain-friendly. Do you think our brains are devolving, that we might become uh, less intelligent? Well, when you compare the size of the brain of different mammals, there is a vast difference between those of land mammals and aquatic mammals, which are far bigger, corresponding to the size of the mammal from the whale and the elephant down to the smallest mammals. If we humans were considered to have evolved as terrestrial mammals on the savannah, we would have brains of a similar size to that of an ape. But human brains are even larger than the equivalent-sized aquatic mammal. The reason for this difference is that evolution and growth of the brain and nerve development is dependent on 
some of the things that you mentioned, but also a diet which includes two essential lipoproteins, the cosahexaconic acid and arachidonic acid. These are abundantly present in the marine and aquatic food, but are not readily available in the terrestrial food chain. It would therefore have been impossible for early humans living on the savannah to have acquired a large brain or to have evolved a significantly higher intelligence than their cousin apes. Professor Michael Crawford has published a great deal on the importance of diet and brain evolution. You ask whether I think human brains is devolving and whether we are becoming less intelligent. There was an interesting article published last year on the use of sat-navs and how these have affected the activity of parts of the brain. The hippocampus, which deals with spatial awareness and our ability to navigate, is particularly important. The study compared people who use memory and maps to navigate to a certain destination and compared it with others who use sat-navs. And they found that those who use memory and maps had intense activity in the hippocampus, but those who use sat-navs had no activity at all. Now, I do think that our increasing use of and reliance on calculators, computers, and artificial intel intelligence, which is so important in many areas of science and medicine technology, is going to lead to devolution of parts of the brain. Now, in my next podcast uh, with Professor Michael Crawford, we're going to go into some depth on the evidence that IQ may be decreasing, that parts of our brain uh, are also decreasing, and how this relates not only to nutrition, um, but also to some of the factors that are now part of our digital universe. Now, I saw you with Sir David Attenborough at the launch of your book, The Waterside Ape. Does he subscribe to the Homo Aquaticus story of our evolution, which of course changes everything. Yes, uh, we're very grateful that Sir David Attenborough has been a staunch supporter of the waterside or aquatic ape theory for over 30 years. In fact, in 1992, he organized a symposium on the aquatic ape theory. And having just published my article earlier that year on ear exostoses and other theories about the aquatic ape, he kindly invited me to present my research there. 21 years later, in 2013, when ear exostoses had been found in early skulls, and with increasing scientific evidence supporting the aquatic theory, we organised an international conference in London on human evolution, with Sir David's help, to try and present and discuss both sides of the aquatic and savannah theories, in the hope that this would stimulate some constructive debate. Unfortunately, anthropologists continued to ignore and ridicule the theory. Sir David again tried to initiate debate with his popular two-part BBC Radio 4 series on the Waterside Ape in 2016, which again had the same negative response from mainstream anthropologists. And it was for this reason that I decided that the only way to hopefully bring this theory to public attention was to present all of the latest scientific evidence and new theories in a book, uh, The Waterside Ape. And what a brilliant book it is, an alternative but much more plausible account of human evolution. Anyone seriously interested in our evolution 
in intelligence and really in the future of humanity from which we can learn so much from the past has to read this book. Now, having delved deeply into this, um, what do you eat? How has your diet been influenced by the Waterside Ape hypothesis? Well, in my generation, we grew up with fish on Fridays and a daily dose of awful cod liver oil. But during the last 30 years or so, the increasing consumption of artificially produced convenient fast food, lacking in all of the essential omega-3 fatty acids, has resulted in a vast increase in mental ill health and psychiatric conditions, not only in the elderly, but increasingly in children, adolescents and young adults, particularly in the Western world. Your next speaker, Professor Michael Crawford, is a world expert in this field, and I look forward to hearing his views. So, out of interest, how often do you eat fish, and uh, do you take omega-3 supplements? Yes, every day, and I have fish um, two or three times a week. And, uh, no, I really enjoy it, and uh, whether it makes any difference to my brain... I'll have to wait and see. <laughs> uh, we are much the same on that. I, I went out to Kenya and uh, fell in love with a carless island called Lamu and bought a bit of sand and built a house in a fishing village. Uh, they have the highest educational standard of uh, anywhere on, on uh, in that region of Kenya. So I find that the people who eat fish usually are smarter and have a better mood. Now, your excellent book, The Waterside Ape, is available from bookshops and Amazon. There is also a Twitter account on The Waterside Ape and information on the website www.aat. That's Aquatic Ape Theory, www.aat. And I strongly recommend that you go to that website and you'll find a link to a short YouTube film of the recent book launch uh, with Sir David Attenborough. So, Peter, that is absolutely fascinating, terribly important. Uh, it has so much uh, impact, really, for anyone interested in health, nutrition, intelligence, and our future. And I'm very, very grateful um, for you to share your time and your intelligence in putting this information out there in such a coherent and scientifically solid way. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Now, in my next podcast, I'll be speaking with Professor Michael Crawford, Director of the Institute of Brain Chemistry and Reproductive Physiology at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. I'll be explaining why he's been given the Order of the Rising Sun in Japan and uh, what he's been doing in the estuaries there that is bringing back uh, all our um, aquatic life and also how, from a simple analysis of fats in the blood, in the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, he is able to predict the outcome uh, of pregnancies. Uh, it's really extraordinary when you dig deep, so please make sure uh, you share this podcast with as many people as possible and do tune in for the next podcast uh, with Professor Michael Crawford.